So I was encouraged by um, a couple of the teachers to talk a little bit about my practice history, um, some of my experiences with Sayadaw and some of you maybe have read his books or even done retreats with him, listened to his talks. He's someone that influenced me. Uh, Well, he's really the one that formed my practice. I would say I was practicing a lot in India, but without a teacher. And so I was um, deeply confused and uh, deluded, I would say, in my initial years of practice. Um, But I was doing my best. a lot of it was kind of show and tell, like I was, I think I was trying to look as spiritual as I could in my practice. And someone mentioned that there was this uh, teacher in Burma that um, was not so known at the time. And I thought, well, I need someone to go and talk to. And it's amazing because my practice at the first, the very first start when I jumped into the Dharma, it was so precious. I knew I had found something that I had been longing for. It was so clear that it was, uh, I couldn't find anything more valuable. It was so deeply what I wanted. I wanted to be immersed in reality, in knowing the truth. And so I really fell in love with the Dharma when James mentioned or asked that question, do you love the Dharma? And I was like, yes. And I was thinking, what is it about the Dharma I really love? I love the bare honesty of it and the willingness to just be vulnerable, so honest and connected to what's happening, what's real. And so it was amazing to me after a couple years of trying to do my own practice without some guidance. I was there, I was doing my practice, watching closely some parts of my experience, a lot of body sensations. And slowly I was getting, somehow I was getting depressed, kind of in the background. How is this possible? I found the Dharma, this thing that I totally adore. And it's like, wow, if the Dharma doesn't work, I don't know what is possible. I don't know what the escape will be. And I, this is that's, you know, the reason why there's like a feeling as if I've got to figure this out. And so I went to, I went to Burma and ended up at, at the center where Saito Utejaniya was staying. And I was reporting to him my practice in detail. And then kind of as a side note said, but I'm really depressed. I I don't know what's happening. This heavy mood that's following me. And he said, well, do you know the mood? Like, well, yeah, I know I'm depressed. But I'm I'm busy doing my practice. And he said, well, that is, you know, that's your practice, your mood. 
And it was amazing that I just needed the lightest bit of information to expand what it was that I was doing at that time, to actually include more of my experience. When Guy was, Guy was naming last night the ability of awareness to receive experiences, I had no idea that I had been, in some ways, pushing away cutting off some aspect of what was already natural, what was already happening. And yet I didn't have the information at that time to know that I could look right there. What am I not paying attention to? What am I missing? And what's relevant? And we can spend so much time and energy trying to find the Dharma And yet so many experiences are so immediate. They're right here, right so close. And yet we skip over it as if there may be something else. Something better to get onto, a better state. And so I was doing everything I could to get into a place of calm and peace. And yet the very way of getting there was right in front of me, just noticing there's a mood I'm not open to. I don't want to feel this. And so I keep running around it and it stays in place. One of the books that, um, that he, that Saida and Tejaniya has is called Awareness Alone is Not Enough. Awareness Alone is Not Enough. And if we think about it, if we just try and be aware, our normal habit is to look at experience through the lens of taking things right personally. That's what we do. We look at our pattern of practice and we start to judge how we practice. We watch the thoughts and the thinking mind and we take that personally emotion that may come up. So without information, our tendency is to identify. We take things personally. So oftentimes, without even knowing it, we're using wisdom in our practice. Then we need to have information alongside our practice. So what is the information that we use? What's the wisdom that we tend to, that we can use in our practice? right view, right? What are some of the views that we use to look at experience that enables us to be kind of clear and seeing what's happening? Just pausing to really connect again, just to see how. Yeah, just want to make sure I'm connected to you. And mm. 
It's a funny thing to be in in, uh, the Dharma seat where I feel, you know, your attention and it's very clear, present. And yet speaking into the unknown, it's it's an interesting phenomenon. Even though I've been doing this for a while now, it's a kind of uncertainty. What am I speaking to? so easy for the, uh, this effort to try and make sure I'm getting this moment right or that interest to, you know, somehow do something, do something good. Anyways, just saying this, seeing what comes. It's a way that I have really come to peace more and more in being, uh, for me, to be present with you and to be on this you know, public, public uh, stage is to use these views, views that remind me that everything that's happening is natural. A couple of the check-ins, we've been talking a lot about nature. What does it really mean, causes and conditions, that things are nature? And we hear this phrase, well, it's causes and conditions. And yet it still somehow feels as if it's something else that's happening. And yet everything that arises in our mind and heart, every aspect of our experience, is nature. It's simply arising because conditions are there. And when we have that perspective that what we are experiencing is part of this flow of life becomes much easier to be with our experience. After a retreat once, and one of the yogis had been hearing that refrain a lot, the causes and conditions of life and the things are nature, and it finally sunk in at one point. And at the end, when she was sharing some of the things that she was taking away from the retreat, I think she was a young mother of two children and raising her uh, kids alone. And she said, you know, when I really, really took that in, that things are simply happening and unfolding, she said, it was such a relief She said, I no longer had to be the master of the universe. And it felt like her whole life had been being the master of the universe, trying to hold everything together, doing and doing and doing, kind of a relentless process that obviously is exhausting. And those tendencies come into our practice as well. A lot of times in reporting, you know, it's wonderful to to see the the sense of balance and ease that can come in practice. You know, as we learn how to to navigate more more the experiences that are happening, being relatively equanimous, there's a sense of ease. And yet so often 
as well, the bit of tension can come in, a little bit of struggle, or at times a more intense tension and practice becomes a burden, feels exhausting. Vitejaniya had a, a phrase for that, that often when yogis would come, and this was most often Westerners for some reason, um, and they would be reporting to him and he'd say, oh, another case of Dhamma trauma. Dhamma trauma. And it's like the practice itself was starting to somehow become a burden. You know, there was, wasn't this sense of ease, of joy in the practice. Let's just say a couple words about um, what is the effort that we're really putting in? And we hear this word effort, and I'm sure there's been a lot of reflections these weeks on the kind of effort that we put into practice. A lot of effort is really trusting in the process. It's a lot more about patience, perseverance. We're not going to kind of sledgehammer our way into enlightenment, have one final breakthrough. And oftentimes sittings can feel like that. Like if I just, I just get this thing done in this moment. And it's like, whatever, I don't know. It's like, what are we trying to do actually, you know, with our mind when we're really pushing in there? Right effort really arises out of an understanding of practice. Understanding how mindfulness really works. What is the nature of mindfulness? The nature of awareness. So when I'm saying mindfulness and awareness, I really just say them uh, kind of synonymously. Keep it very simple. You know, so some of you that I've been sitting with in individuals, check-ins, um, you know, I've done this with you, and this is the way side oftentimes will um, kind of do a little reminder about how much effort is needed in practice. You know, so he'll just ask the question, you know, in this moment, and maybe just if your eyes are closed, you can open them, and... Uh, I'm just going to do a couple questions. You're just noticing your feet. Notice, you know, whatever you're sensing there. Maybe bringing the attention to your hands. Okay, now noticing that you're seeing. Right, and so then the question is, when did you become aware that you were seeing? Well, many of you maybe were already aware that you were seeing because of the momentum that you have. But also, if the attention isn't on that particular sense door, just by hearing the phrase, are you aware that you're seeing? The sense of seeing, the mindfulness of seeing arises. 
And then really checking to see how much energy did that take? Are you aware that you're seeing? So we can notice when we do that, it's the lightest touch, hardly anything. And that mindfulness arises at that door. So one translation that's probably been said is of sati, of mindfulness, is to remember. To remember what's happening in the present moment. And yet, if we were to look in our practice, one of the places that the defilements um, of greed and aversion can creep into our practice is along with the quality of effort of trying to do something. That's the place that so often we're trying too much, trying to get, trying to change, trying to fix. And if we remember that all it takes for mindfulness itself to be present is the lightest touch, that becomes something that's sustainable something that we can do. And I love that aspect of the practice because in my early years of practice, I did so much personal efforting in my Dharma experience. And I could get, you know, into these wonderful states of experience, beautiful state that I, of course, would cling to, get quite proud about, you know, want to boast to the teacher tell all these wonderful things that would happen. And then every time afterwards, after the retreat was over, the practice would fall apart. And it was because I didn't yet really understand the art of the practice. How to do this in a way, how to really live the Dharma so that it is sustainable, something that is very immediate, very natural, There was a way that um, when I was in Burma that Sidal would would kind of offer these little uh, pointers. And he'd come, he'd just sort of be walking by me. So I was outside. And he'd say, are you aware? Are you aware? And then he'd just say, check. Very lightly, just check. You know, and that's all the energy that we really need for that quality of mindfulness to be present is the lightest bit of checking. Allowing the continuity of practice to develop in that way is a sustainable way for practice, I find, for that momentum to really naturally be there. It's not forced. It's not a, a, like, holding on to, to practice becomes very relaxing, very easeful. You know, and I think more and more as I understand truly the, the essence of the practice, it ought to feel relaxing, like a coming home, a deep sigh. Oh, this is what's happening. It may be unpleasant, right? It may not be something that we want to be have happening but when we really understand what our job is, it's not to get rid of something. It's not to fix. It's just to acknowledge. 
oh, there's trembling or anxiety. You know, so often in hearing uh, more and more reports about practice, about what's, what's being experienced, someone might say something like, uh, give a very detailed description of everything that's happening, some, you know, difficult mind state or all these thoughts that are going on. And then at the end of it say, I can't be aware. And now more and more when I hear I can't be aware at the, and at the end of a long description, basically I'm hearing, I don't like what I'm aware of. I can't be aware. I'm not quite sure it makes sense to me anymore. You know, right now, just in your own experience, see if you can inwardly or outwardly looking or whatever, you know, point to something and pay attention to something that you can't be aware of that's in your experience. What can't you be aware of that's in your experience? There's lots of things that there's things I would like to change in my experience currently. (laughs) I can be aware of them. And then I can bring in the reminders of practice. This is what's happening. This is a new moment. What's happening is nature. I find every time the Dharma perspective, the Dharma view comes in, it's such a wholesome state of mind. It's a wholesome reflection that the whole orientation of how I'm relating to experience kind of settles. And when I don't bring in those reminders and I'm just kind of mindful, it's almost as if the mind is paying attention in a way that can get very agitated. So these reminders and... uh, during one retreat, Saido, um, this was at IMS, and he was teaching there. Um, and he gave a reminder at one point. He said, don't forget to think. And it was during one of the sittings. And I opened my eyes, and I, I saw a bunch of people like with a big grin, because it was for sure the first time they had heard, don't forget to think. And because it was being translated, you know, the rest of it hadn't been translated yet, but I loved that initial phrase. And it was almost like relieving to people. To, I could see it was like, oh, um, it's okay, I can think. <laughs> Which, of course, they were, you know, we're doing all the time. And then he said, you know, he finished it off by saying, you know, in a wholesome way or in a skillful way. But that still can be new to our experience to what we permit into how we consider practice. You know, and so often we're fighting, in a way, our our thinking mind. And yet thinking is something that is so natural. 
And in fact, we, act, we need our intelligence in our practice. We need to consider, what are we doing? How am I practicing in this moment? How am I relating to the experience? You know, so that instead of having, you know, the information be coming in from the outside, more and more this energy of directed dharma is happening inwardly. We're using our, our own intelligence, the wisdom that we've gathered, the knowledge that we've heard, the information that we've picked up. We have to use that. So practice doesn't become uh, a dry mechanical process. The Dharma can be just absolutely sparkling all the time in the midst of boredom, when we know how to look, we get interested. Ordinary moments can check the mind. Is the mind aware? What is it knowing? See if there's any questions that are bubbling up in the hall from where I've started off. And if not, I'm sure more thoughts will come. Is there any questions at the moment or any, anything you'd like to check in about or like to hear about? Right. The Zen masters will have that as well. And my own experience of it is that your energy slips into a place where it's, 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 it's very hard to mm-hmm. be aware of that in a, in a very deep way. Yeah, so the question is. In hearing me mention about that, uh, the mood of dep- or depression was kind of coming in um, to, into my experience, and I was getting depressed. How did I skillfully work with that? And hearing that also, Sadhotajaniya had spent periods of pretty strong depression. Um, you know, and how to really skillfully work with that? That's a, a very big topic, um, and and 
you know, what I would say what I was going through was like the beginnings of that depressive mood. So not to say that, that this is, a, this is a, a, a very significant thing to really have to work with. Um, so I don't want to make it sound as if it's a, you know, an easy process because as anyone that's had depression knows it's, it consumes the entire mind and body. And it feels as if there's, there's very little way to get energy into the system to begin to get out of that, that experience. I'll just give one little story from Utejaniya. What he, his his depression was so was strong enough that uh, he was a layperson at the time, and he pretty much his nature is kind of he doesn't care what like the world you know thinks of him more or less. He does what he what he's going to do, and he um, he knew that the depression was overpowering him. He knew about he had been practicing a lot, but these uh, very strong bouts of depression kept coming. So he had, he took one of these um, insta- smelling st- uh, sticks, like a little little stick that you kind of put into your nose for a second and take smell and it clears, excuse me, clears your sinus. So he, what he did was actually, he took this thing and just put it in his nose. So he had this big white stick sticking out of his nose. And he was working in the market selling his things. And he didn't, he's like, I don't care what they think. This is my only refuge right now. And what he said, what he was doing was he was trying to introduce a strong enough object for his attention to go to that would keep his attention away from being drawn in, magnetized right into the difficulty. Right, so that was his initial way of stabilizing the mind is letting the mind take an object that was balancing and supportive. And the thing is, I think so often for many of us, I know it's still true for me, every time I actually get a bit still and close my eyes, it's usually the most difficult, contracted part of my experience that my attention gets drawn to. It's like a magnet, it goes right there and the reason why it does that is because we have aversion. Right? Aversion resists and then will contract our attention to that very thing. And it's almost as if the whole universe now is that experience. That's what happens you know, with something like depression. Nothing else exists except that experience. And so a lot of practice, I find, is, is the mind balanced? Is it able to be with this experience? Why is it getting drawn to this particular place in my experience? You know, can we actually see that there's resistance and identification with that? And that's why we keep getting, keep getting drawn in. So just to say, and then about my own experience with, with that mood, it was almost like it was, it would have become a more severe uh, um, depression, let's say, or identification with it, if I hadn't actually had that chance at that moment, because it was still getting light. And honestly, just being invited in to allow that into my field of knowing, and then to look at my, my resistance to it, my judgment of it, 
and begin to see it as simply what it is that I could open to it. And when I wasn't resisting it, and I was able to see it as simply a phenomenon that I could be aware of, the intensity of being identified with it was softening. Right? And that's, that's how a lot of practice around things, and it's not to go in to look and, and try and undo something, but actually seeing what's happening, being interested. I kept trying to just escape out of, the, out of that mood, but as soon as I actually could turn and say, oh, you are welcome, you know, and there was a phrase that was coming up earlier this evening in my mind of, I don't want to put a song in your head, but it's just a phrase. So it's not a song, it's a phrase. And it was just, hello, darkness, my old friend. And it was like that kind of welcoming. Oh, hello, you're welcome. You know, and then it's like, oh. And, and that's when we're talking about the attitude of mind. Can we have an attitude that actually welcomes even darkness, even contraction. And if we're stuck in something, right, and we're overwhelmed by what's happening, that's that relationship that's easeful, that's welcoming, is not in our reach. And that's when we say it's actually out of wisdom that we open the mind to something else, let the mind find its balance, and then we revisit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, two-part question. Um, you know, just all human beings in general, is there sort of a general spectrum of where we are closer or further away to enlightenment. And the second part is, why, who is it that actually gets drawn here? Is there a certain category? Why, do, why are there a lot of Jewish Dharma teachers? There are a lot, are they, you know? Are we all similarly neurotic or crazy? What brings us all here? Um, You know, as far as who's, who, who, you know, is closest to freedom or the development of those qualities, the cultivation of mind and heart, we all come into the world, as we say, there's this phrase of, um, like, parmi profile, profile of parmis, um, or with karmic conditioning. I'd say we all enter in, in unique ways. And yes, there may be some folks who have constitutionally 
maybe greater facility towards happiness or not. Um, so I don't know, that's sort of luck of the draw, and it's also difficult to tell depending on what was formed early on. I do know that wherever it is that we are, when we take up a path, we're not leaving it up to chance what happens. And that's to me what was happening in my life before I came into the Dharma. It was complete chance. Maybe I get happy, maybe I get, you know, good conditions or bad conditions or do something skillful or not skillful, but I had no way to actually cultivate what now I know can be cultivated, right? The wholesome qualities and to actually learn from the unwholesome. It was completely chance. And so we see a lot of people who out of good circumstances have a good life, have a good mind, and it's still somewhat chance. It happened to be that way. And the opposite is true. And yet, you know, this is the gift of the Dharma is that it is, and I think it is a phrase, I don't know if this is in the canon or, or one of the masters that had said this, but he's said something to the effect of the Dharma is as sure as taking a walking stip, stick and aiming at the ground, that you will hit it if you ply yourself, if you, if you move in the direction of the Dharma. And it's true, you know, we just need to continue, continue the practice, you know, day after day. It's not a, it's not a sprint, this is a lifelong practice. And in taking big chunks of time, you know, we can very clearly see how the mind and heart changes, you know, how habits that aren't serving us become a little bit lighter, a little bit less gripping us. And then those qualities that, we, that do serve us, they're getting stronger and we're getting more confident and the mind may be getting brighter and it's a little bit easier to stay in difficulty or a little bit easier to stay present in a conversation or whatever it is, you know, and there's that momentum is taking us. Okay. Hi. So if, you, if one does find themselves in an over-efforting state, how would you kind of come back to balance? Um, just curious, just as a show of hands, if maybe self-revealing, does, did anyone find themselves over-efforting yet during this retreat? Oh, it's, uh, okay, so it's happened before. So, it's, so you might have, that was a really long... Um, I mean, it's just great to know that it's, it's, part of, it's part of the game, right? Because these habits of mind are so deep of wanting and doing and craving and, and not liking that, of course, when we pay attention, we're going to be doing more than what's required, than what's really required. So one of the things is actually using your own, your own knowledge where you're checking for yourself. What am I doing right now? Is there too much? Is there too much? How far can I pull back 
and actually still stay mindful. You know, one thing I used to play with is if there was some momentum, I would actually say, okay, I'm going to stop being aware. All right, right now, right, stop being aware, right? So don't be aware. Is it? So, you know, it's like if I say don't be aware right now, it almost can feel as if like, oh. Another, th- another thing that uh, I think it was a, a monk in, in England in the um, Ajahn Chah lineage, he's, he would say that sometimes he would, you know, in, in the middle of the sitting, he would kind of just go ring the bell. And he'd see everyone just kind of go, oh. <laughs> and then he'd say, oh, the sitting's not over. I was just, I was just you know, ringing the bell. <laughs> and he said, you know, and he's going, that's, that's, that's the balance you want. Because like, it reveals that just before that moment, you know, and then we hear the bell, we've been struggling to get to the end, and then suddenly, ah. Oh. <laughs> and then we know how to relax. We know how to relax. But sometimes it takes, you know, this, this thing, you know, to help, to help the system go, oh, yeah. Oh, that's, oh yeah, that's how I get back to balance. You know? So learning how to check and see, is it, and even just having the information that we should check, right? Yeah, is the mind balanced? Is it striving? And it's not to not be mindful. This is in order to be mindful continuously so that it's sustainable and relaxing. How do I do that? How do I do that so that it, I can stay connected as much as we can from the moment we wake up, the first I you know, eyelids are opening, you know, and then how long does it take for mindfulness to show up? Being interested. When does it start to come? All the way, you know, until what's the last thought, the last thing that's going through the mind. And, and the only way we can really do that is when we really understand the practice, really understand what is mindfulness, what is awareness. Do I make awareness know things? Or is it the nature of mindfulness to actually know? And my job is just to check, is mindfulness still present? And then we say, oh, I can't be aware, you know, I can't, I'm experiencing something and we're just in there struggling and then you remind yourself, oh, I'm already mindful of it. That's enough. And then you need to check, at that point, there's another process, but then you need to check, how am I relating to it? Am I remembering that simply nature? But a lot of the effort comes more based in wisdom than in some energy, you know, that you're trying to do. I find it's, you know, really reminding oneself, all right, I already know what's happening. Can I back off a little bit? If just in terms of the energy that one's putting in, because so often the energy that we're doing is, it's some defilement motivated, you know, thing and, I mean, Saito, his whole thing is about trying to get the whole thing, but he so often is trying to balance the mind. And so often our practice gets wound up into a big knot. So then he said, all right, I'm going to give yogis three jobs. And if you're straying outside of those three jobs, you're doing too much. And it was a way of like really simplifying the practice again. And so those three jobs, he said, was okay, Bring in right view. Remember that you're, what you're seeing is nature. Okay, so that that's 
right at the outset, oh yes, this is what it is. This is what's happening, it's an emotion, it's a thought. Check to see if the mind is aware and then continue doing that. <laughs> it's kind of a strange three-step thing. But anyway, so, and he said, you know, if, one, if you're doing more than that, most likely, not, not entirely, but, but often the, it's often the case we're actually trying to do more, trying, to, trying through aversion or through delusion because of some motivation, there's something that's happening in there. That oftentimes the practice is a lot more simple of just patiently waiting and checking to see if the mind is still aware. Awareness with wisdom, with right view, it'll see experience. So then all we need to do is watch, at that point, anything becomes a good enough experience, right? Everything is a dhamma. Every emotion is a dhamma. Every thought is a dhamma. Every knot in the body. So everything can reveal a Nietzsche dukkha and anatta, our preferencing mind is constantly running away from, from what's already arising, which is going to reveal the dhamma in order to get to some better dhamma, which really is just our wanting the pleasant state of peace and ease. And the more we see that, the more we just go, okay, what's happening? Yeah. Does that kind of, yeah, okay. Okay. And I wonder if that's consistent with what you're talking about. Mm. Yeah, so what do you, what do you, so he's just saying that attention, it seems to be acting like a filter on what it is. Focusing my attention on, on my breath. Uh-huh. And there's other things going on, and what occurs to me to, to like, what is this thing that's like, you know, uh, causing contraction or hurts or, you know, when I stop and look, well, what I've done is I've focused my attention on breath, and then I'm not going to see anything else, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yes, so just that he was noticing that in these other things that seem to be happening and causing some kind of turmoil, but then you keep coming back to the breath to be with the breath, and almost seems as if you're blocking that stuff out in order to be with the breath. There's a lot of ways to practice, and, and you know, I don't want to say that you always want to open up because if your practice is to be with the breath then when you notice something else you can recognize that that is there and then return to the breath if that's what you're if that's the way you're orienting the thing that is helpful that i think it, you know it pretty much applies universally in our practice is is to include the the wise view about what is happening so that the, if there's an attachment to a part of our practice, like the breath, and something else happens, instead of seeing that as well as being dhamma and maybe relevant to look at, it becomes a distraction that I don't want to look at because there's an assumption in the mind, the really delusion, that's saying this is a distraction. This is simply also arising. It can be known. And it's oftentimes a sign that the awareness is getting stronger, 
But because we don't have that perspective, we consider it a distraction. And that's the only adjustment, depending on how you want to practice. If you want to be with the breath, something else arises, recognizing, oh, look, the awareness is knowing this. As the awareness gets stronger, it's going to naturally be able to receive the more total overview of our experience of body, of mind, and we get the more complete experience. The limitation, if we just limit our our experience down to a single object, with the idea that everything else is not included, if that's the if that's the view that's operating, then we then we will miss very relevant data, which is all of the reactions that the mind has to something that's really clear. Like for me, was this big mood and all that aversion and identification that was happening, and because I wasn't actually simply acknowledging. I, was, I knew it was happening, but I didn't include it. Somehow I didn't feel like it was you know, the right thing to be watching. I thought there was something else that was better. And yet, that's the Dhamma. It's revealing precisely what it is that's happening in the moment. And anytime there's, to me now at this point, anytime there's this, like a ping of dukkha, you know, and I can feel there's some stress or, or something that's arising, some discomfort, some agitation, some boredom, some restlessness. I get so interested because I know for sure there's something worth looking at. My finger, you know, has stopped pointing outside as being the cause. I know there's something very relevant that I can become aware of inwardly. What am I resisting? What is it, what view is operating that I'm not seeing? What assumption? What can I see? Right, so we can get very interested simply from a moment of dukkha. So you can just explore, you know, and this is very individual in terms of practice and how we each want to practice, but, you know, if at times you're with the breath and there's some other experiences that almost like seem like they're knocking, you can let that in. What else can I let in? If the awareness feels stable and that's, this is what's arising. Let me, let me notice that. Great. So, I'll be um, doing the reflections in the morning or the, the Q&A, so I'll just do a couple people. So if they can wait till tomorrow, we'll pause here. So we just sit together uh, for a moment and let the words fall away. <laughs> 